going to open my mouth and words are going to come out. And Seems likely. I mean, that's basically how I built my entire teaching career. And you were so successful. And you're teaching us Was now. I? Was well I? Well-reviewed is what I've always heard. Yeah. Oh. It was like Indiana Jones. The girls had crushes on you and would, like, write love you on their eyelids. <laughs> that, was, that was... I was always waiting for that. That was... That was the aspiration, to go full indie. <laughs> no one who knows you is surprised by this. <laughs> yeah. Indiana Jones and my spirit animal. Weird. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 274. I am professional podcaster, Clay Morgan. I am JR Supreme Foresteros. <laughs> I'm Kathy Kong. And I am Matt Supreme Justice Michelotis. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Judge Fudge. Well, on this week's show, we will be tackling the supreme topic of all topics. And that is our judicial system. Hey. Who, gets, who, gets, who can get excited about anything else? Uh, but you know, first, JR, yes? Oh, I was going to say, this episode drops the day before election day. Mm. Oh. So by the time you're listening to this, we'll probably only have like four weeks left before we know who wins the election. <laughs> yeah, no. We're going to know election so, day. I feel it. An election which could be impacted by the Supreme Court. That's right. That's why we decided to do an episode on this, and because we have an expert in one Clay Morgan. So, but uh, but this season we've been talking about hope for the future, and I have something exciting to share with you all about oh. our future hope, and that Play is uh, uh, this comes from the scientific realm, Clay, of uh, <laughs> of evolution. <laughs> so, evolutionary scientists have recently discovered that a variety, as you know, they trace back evolutionary kind of trails. And what they've discovered is that there's five different paths, so different animals, that all lead to the same evolutionary end, which is a bunch of animals have been evolving into crabs. So, like, different animals. Different animals. It's like they weren't evolutionary on the same path, and they all kind of slowly moved and became the same thing from different paths. As though the form of crab is like a pincher point. As if, yes, as if there's some sort of multi-legged, hard-shelled advantage to having green blood. I love mm. it. Uh, so, Matt, yeah. uh, I feel like the only logical conclusion that can be drawn from this is that we are all evolving into crabs as well. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's hope for the future. Okay. Yeah. One day you that's... too might have more legs than you have. You might have. Should pinchers. I stop? Should I stop trimming my fingernails? Telescopic eyes. Um, yeah, sure. And I, I bet Kathy, what you, you had some things to say before the show about good things about crabs too. Well, I mean, I want to know if these are edible crabs. Are are there inedible crabs? Well, like the really little ones. <laughs> I will be a pretty big crab. <laughs> <laughs> right? I feel like that's just not worth the work to eat those. So, um, I'm a little worried because my wife already says that I'm crabby a lot. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Womp, womp. <laughs> Crabs are well known for their joke telling, Jer. Yes, they're hilarious. They're one of the more hilarious <laughs> members of the animal it's kingdom. It's true. Oh, man. Um, speaking of science, <laughs> as you as you guys Just know, play. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm here for all the science. I'm here to bring all the science expertise. Uh, Matt, did anybody hit you up this week about the sunlit lands of the moon? No. What is that? Um, so there was a story that's been uh, in the headlines the last couple of days in the scientific community, which, you know, as you guys know, I'm more tapped into than, than, than most people. Right. Uh, they have discovered uh, higher amounts of water on the moon than they previously knew about. And specifically, all of the stories are talking about how it's on the sunlit surface of the moon. Mm. And I never really thought about, like, the sunlit lands of the moon. But, like, over and over, I kept hearing these NASA scientists talking about in the sunlit areas. So I was thinking about you, which is why I listened to stories about science. Um, <laughs> because it was about the sunlit lands. But it's actually kind of cool. Like, they're, they're learning that there may be an availability of water they heretofore didn't know about. And, like, yeah, the first thought might be we can go to the moon and have drinking water. But I guess they could also like get up there and make rocket fuel on the moon, which what? could potentially propel further exploration, right? What? So why wouldn't they use it to try and make an atmosphere? I don't know. I think they probably need more water than what is there, and they'll be thirsty before that. <laughs> Just take some Gatorade with you, jeez. Because you know it's like really expensive to take stuff to the moon. Right, right, right. Like it's it's way worse than an American Airlines baggage fee. Yeah, it's like so yeah, for sure. It's like if you don't have here. to take all that drinking water, that's helpful. Makes sense. Huh. Uh, Matt, can you confirm that these announcements were cross-promotion with your publisher? Yes, yes absolutely. Uh, water on the Moon brought to you by Tyndale House Publishers, also the publishers <laughs> of the Sunlit Lands trilogy, starting with the uh, award-nominated novel, The Crescent Stone, by Matt Michelotis. Very good. Mm. Very good. Mm -hmm. Kathy. <clears throat> yes? Uh, would you or would you not be the first person to drink moon water if that was a possibility? Mm, no. What if it made you a werewolf? No. I eat moon pies. Hmm. This segment brought <laughs> to you by moon pies. <laughs> I was unaware until just this moment that moon pies came from the moon. What? I guess that you didn't know? It's in the name. No, it's in the name, but just never put two and two together. This is the kind of historical accuracy we bring on this show. Hmm. Well, well, speaking of historical accuracy, uh, the Supreme Court, I, I feel like it was in the news a little bit this past week. A little. Uh, Clay, what's going on there? Uh, stuff. Definitely heavy stuff. Let's so, start with this. I have a serious question. How many presidents have appointed three or more justices during their tenure? I don't know, man. I've been out of the classroom so many years. You ask me trick questions like that. But I, feel, I know. Okay. I feel like I feel like that's Let's a see. relatively rare thing. Let's see. Like Nixon, FDR is probably in that conversation. I, I once upon a time would have had a shot at answering that, but then again, Jr. You know, a follow up question is how many justices are on the Supreme Court, and has it always been that many? Has it oh, always been that many, question. Professor? So there question. are nine currently. Yes, there have been nine since 1869 when uh, an act of Congress um, set it to the current number that we're at now. But that, that wasn't how the court system began. Was in it fact, originally court, one yeah. dude who was just called the Supreme Justice, and then they kept adding more, kind of like having more than one best friend? 
Uh, yeah, it was kind of like having more than one best friend, except sometimes friends could turn on each other. <laughs> but was no, it just so, one guy to start or like? So, so to start, it was an idea in the constitution. Like we, we think of the executive branch and like now we can picture the presidency and the white house and, you know, a body that makes laws and we can picture Congress as the legislative branch and there's the Capitol, right? And there's this group of people that controls taxes and, and legislation and stuff like that. The judicial branch was defined a little bit in the Constitution, but it was ultimately left to Congress to like create it later on. So it's like, let's ratify the Constitution and then we'll figure out like what this thing's going to really look like. So the court system was created by Congress in 1789. And that's where they established things like there will be a, a bunch of district courts uh, around these new states. And then there'll be some circuit courts. So, you know, Take, take your mind back in time before there's an easy ability to travel, right? You've got horses and carriages. Well, how do you get cases heard when you're all spread out? Judges would travel in like a circuit, right? So, you know, even up until Abraham Lincoln as a practicing attorney, you know, it would be like Lincoln rolling into town with a couple other judges and like anybody in that circuit in that area could come and like air all their grievances and there were judges around to like make determinations and then they would move on to the next area. And then there were, um, you know, ultimately state courts. And, and of course, they defined that there would be a thing called a Supreme Court. But that didn't really look anything like what we think of today when we when we think of the Supreme Court. Um, so, Clay, so, so, yeah, that's, that's so kind Clay, of how like, it like started. The Supreme Court in those days, like they might all be traveling at different times. So, like, you might only get a couple of them instead of all of them sitting for your case. Well, remember how mistrustful the founders were of judges to begin with, right? Like, there's a famous quote by Thomas Jefferson. Wait, you, you say that, like that's common knowledge. I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. I didn't I knew, know that. I knew they distrusted kings, and I was pretty sure they had it out for bears after this book I read. Okay. Other than that. Well, let's talk about Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> oh, there, dear. there are, there are um, these famous papers called the Federalist Papers. They were a series of essays written by Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison that were propaganda basically to get people to, to sign off on the Constitution. And one of the hard sells they had to make when they were trying to get the states to be down with the, this new Constitution was about the judiciary. Because the idea that you elect a president, which was something they sorted out, and that you would elect congressional leaders meant they could be voted out of office. So they had this big debate about, like, what, who are these judges? We're talking about judges, and they're not elected. Like, that sounds dangerous. So there was this always this fear that if you had powerful judges that were not uh, able to be voted out, Thomas Jefferson said that if you have an overactive uh, group of judges, the Constitution could become like a thing of wax that could be shaped and molded any way they choose. Uh, and so they had to defend this, but the reasons they didn't want the judges to be um, up for election was because, you know, then they'd have to be like winning votes. They'd have to be out there like really being political and that could get tricky. But also um, it takes a long time for a judge to get up to speed and to kind of grow that level of discernment, right? So maybe by definition their job requires them to have a longer term and, and so on. So there was just always a controversial mindset around 
who judges were and what uh, what they should be able to do to begin with. And so, like, the very fact that we have this word unconstitutional, like, we, we've taken that for granted for so many generations, right? So, Kathy, if something is unconstitutional, what does that mean? It's, well, I what I think of it as it goes against what the founding fathers were thinking, which means it has nothing to do with me. Okay, interesting. <laughs> yeah, right? This feels so much like class. I'm so afraid of being called on right now. I know. And we're uh, not even making eye contact. Mr. Michelotis. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <Shoots>. <laughs> yes, Professor Clay. No. So, okay. So, so that's the point, right? Like the very fact that something can be unconstitutional, like Kathy says, is it means it's not legal, right? It doesn't, it's not uh, allowed for in this constitution. That very idea did not exist when the Supreme Court was created. Oh. Like it was not, it was <laughs> not a foregone conclusion that justices what? would decide this. That actually was something that happened like a little bit into American history. So the concept of something being unconstitutional is literally unconstitutional. <laughs> well, it certainly was, like I said. It's they, non-constitutional. It's non-constitutional. They left it open to interpretation, <laughs> right? So, oh. so you basically have this guy named John Marshall, who was one of the early Supreme Court chief justices. And there was this big case that popped up in the early 1800s called Marbury versus Madison. So anybody who's ever taken high school history, probably you had to hear about this if, if you remember anything about it or not. But essentially, he had, to make a he had to oversee a decision on whether or not something was legal or not. And the, the phrase that comes out of this um, when, when he made a decision is called judicial review. So basically, forget the case. Like, that doesn't matter. It's just the fact that Marshall, by his actions in leading this decision, determined that the judicial department gets to say what the law is. So in other words, the court could strike down government actions that aren't compatible with the Constitution. So that was like, if you think about it, we're talking 15 years into American existence. So they and, became and all like, of a sudden, the, like the guardians of the Constitution, essentially. Yes. So a lot of people think like that's what judges always did. But that was actually an innovation, like a development of how the system necessarily would have to work. And what's interesting about Marshall is he makes this huge move, right? And he actually like declares this philosophy. And he's the chief justice for over 30 years and he never used it again. Like, it wasn't like he just went on this streak and the court was, like, constantly striking things down. So just the fact that it was established, it still took decades until it was really, like, brought into more common use. Wow. In, in fact, guys, it wasn't used again until uh, a majorly critical decision called uh, the Dred Scott decision, Scott versus Sanford in 1857. So that was a case that was all about slavery. Basically, if a slave owner moved into a free territory, were they allowed to take their slaves with them? And in their definition, they called their slaves property. And was it legal to then take a slave into a free territory still claiming that you had a right to property? And the Supreme Court, at this point now heavily shaped by Andrew Jackson, um, determined that, that, yes, this was in fact constitutional. So they were essentially striking down the law of the land, which was that territory saying slavery was outlawed, and saying, no, this guy has the right to his property. 
Um, and it's no surprise then that the Civil War happens within five years of that decision. That was just one of the things leading up to it. So that's like your crash course, basically, on the first, you know, really century. Uh, and then, of course, we get into Reconstruction and we end up with nine justices and, and the court starts to take shape kind of like it looks today. So if you disagree with the Supreme Court, your only option is to go to war. That's what I'm hearing. Man, it's pretty scary, right? So we could talk you know, a little bit later on about like how judges are kept in check and so on. But yeah, so just the very fact that we're talking about the current Supreme Court and Trump has had this ability to shape it with all these justices, everybody's talking now about how the court is conservative. This is the most conservative court we've had since the 1930s. Because what happens is, like, generationally, it goes back and forth. You get, to, as president, you get to appoint uh, replacements to the Supreme Court. So if, if a member retires or dies, they get to be replaced. And if you happen to be president in a time when multiple judges go away, then you get that ability to shape the judicial branch long beyond your term as president, which is what's happened many times. So, so that brings us to today, I guess. Yes. Sure. Yeah. So we just had a new justice put in. How does that, uh, so how does that work? Like I've been hearing a lot of people talking, I can't remember the term originalist or something. Is that right? The way that, the way that our new justice reads the law or thinks what her job is, is to like, Read yeah, what the Constitution actually originally says or something. Yeah, Jr. and I were talking about this. So you know, they're often called strict constructionalists. constructionalists um, yeah. Original original intent is the is the common phrase, right? So basically, it's like an interesting women parallel. Can't be justices like that. <laughs> well, so so Jr. talk about the parallels, right? Because we we've been talking about deconstruction all year. So there's people who read the Bible in a in a literal way, and there's people who read the Constitution. It, it quickly runs into problems like that, Matt. But uh, I was wondering, JR, if you've pondered that thought anymore. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, one, obviously, this has been an extremely politicized choice, in part because, uh, you know, President Obama faced a vacancy at the Supreme Court uh, with 200 days to go before the election, and the Republicans, led by Mitch McConnell, blocked him saying, you know, it, it just wouldn't be right to not let the voters have a voice in this. And then uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, you know, with uh, a month to go before the election. Uh, her last wish is that, you know, the, the seat would remain vacant until after the election. And the same Republicans led by the same Mitch McConnell, who said that the voters should have a voice. It's only right. Have, have basically thrown all that aside and rushed to appoint <clears throat> Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, before the election. And the what, what a lot of this centered on, at least in the circles that I was following, was the fact that she's a very conservative Catholic, so very pro-life, which goes back to our, our last episode. Uh, but also that she is one of these that you, you mentioned, a strict constructionalist, who uh, believes that the Constitution should be interpreted and applied as nearly as possible as the original founders would have if they were still sitting in, you know, in the, in the court instead of the, the new justices. Well, but then shouldn't she not even be on the court? Well, well that's it, right, Kathy? That's <laughs> like, exactly what I started thinking because, you know, we all know 
uh, Christians who read the Bible the exact same way, right? Or they they claim to. Um, they say Six you know days. the Bible, sh- right? They say the Bible <laughs> should be read and interpreted exactly as the original uh, authors intended. Uh, so there's there's a few assumptions going on there. One is that that original intent is even actually recoverable. That's pretty questionable for the founders of the United States, given how far removed we are from them by both culture and history. Uh, it's even more difficult for uh, the people who authored the original uh, texts of the scripture, as anyone who has some biblical training will tell you, right? It's, it's extremely difficult to put ourselves in their sandals and figure out what they originally meant. And there's like, there's no way to check that, right? If Kathy and I come to different conclusions about what the author of first Peter meant, well, we can't go ask whoever that was. No, but we can just say to each other, you're not being (laughs) biblical or you do not value (laughs) scripture. So, So that's one big problem, right? Is like who gets to decide who's being the most, uh, literal or, or the it, it's not even nece- it's not even exactly literal right because you could still you could interpret poetry as poetry and still be trying to get to what the original poet was trying to communicate um so it's not it's not even exactly literalist but it is it is that who gets to decide who's who's being the the most faithful to the original intent uh i think the deeper issue and this is what Kathy has been pointing at is like well who does you know I think it's a little harder for us to ask this of biblical text, though I think it's still a fair question. But especially in in terms of the founders, you know, these were people who were deeply misogynistic, who had no problem owning slaves and also trying and also trying to convince everyone that we were all created equal, Uh, (laughs) you know, executing genocide against native nations, all this kind of stuff. So, like, who who decided that just because that's the way they think that's the way we should lead today. Like we are over 200 years past them and our, the world has changed immeasurably since then. So like, even if we could recover the original intent, why would we want to, why would we want to? (laughs) Yeah. But Um, in a, a constructionalist today though, they wouldn't be saying like, Oh, let's make, let's make black people property. And things like that. I assume is is that- except for Lindsey Graham. You mean right? Right. We talked about the I mean, there are some exceptions. But I mean, okay. generally, the yeah. view of constructionalists is not is not that right. Well, that's uh, that's where the parallel is interesting, right? But like, it's it's just like people who are biblical literalists, like they are, except for the stuff that. Well, obviously, that doesn't apply anymore. Or this makes yeah, exactly. Like they pick and choose. Right. Is, like is polyester is okay. Synthetic materials are fine. Great. Right. So what what is a constructionalist actually saying then? Like, what is their, what what is their point? Like that we should more or less stick to it? Or like, I I don't understand. Like, I understand that they're only taking part of it, but like, what is the benefit of the part they're wanting? They're more rigid in their reading and allows them. So the very idea of being conservative is to conserve the ways and traditions of the past, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you are less likely to progress and change if you are in, of a conservative mindset. And and Coney Barrett's mentor was Scalia, I think, right? So right. he was kind of like the most famous recent conservative justice. And, and that's why we talk about like we've had liberal courts and we've had conservative courts. And even for all of the terrible faults and flaws of the founders, they did adopt a system that had amendments. The the very reason you have a system that says 
there's these things called amendments that can happen is because we obviously don't know what the future is going to look like. We obviously miss some stuff. Like they didn't understand. <laughs> I mean, there, there were the Hamiltons of the world that were like, yeah, like we got to get slavery outlawed. Right. And, but like and someone now, was like, one day we might want women to vote. Who knows? <laughs> right. Like the system can be changed. And so by the time you get into the 1800s, it's like some amendments have come along. Like, well, are these amendments legal or not? Does this count? And it comes down to this fundamental idea of like, what is America? What? And and we don't think about states' rights as much today, although we're moving back towards that in a lot of conversations as they were obsessed with in the 19th century. But that was always the tension. What is this sketchy federal government allowed <laughs> to do against we states that are, you know, the the predominant power? We we are America. And it's it's the old Shelby Foot, you know, quote where he said, Before the Civil War, people said the United States are, and after the Civil War, the language became the United States is hmm. because because the federal government has been an ever expanding b- um, body. I have a question about this, and I may be completely wrong, so please uh strike me down with all rigor if I am. Uh but the the constitution uh, the, the the guys who wrote the Constitution framed it out of Enlightenment documents. You know, Voltaire, uh, I can't list any of the other ones, uh, Locke, uh, right, Hume, key. like all these. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, um, Locke and Key, right. Um, <laughs> so uh, Calvin and Hobbes, is that? Yeah. Yeah, um, Calvin and Hobbes, exactly. Uh, and one of the hallmarks of the Enlightenment was this radical individualism, right? It's Descartes, I think, therefore I am. What, what defines me as human is my personhood, my individual identity. And I think that's something we see framed out in the Constitution and, and the concern for personal liberty and even the conception of a nation as a group of individuals who come together to form local co- communities, who then glom together to form states, who then glom together to form a nation. And I think there's a logic at work, and this is, again, where please correct me if I'm wrong, there's a logic at work that, like, the larger the group gets, the less influence or control they should have because what what matters most is the individual entity. And so if you give the larger groups more power, they're going to erase the, the individual or, tr- or tread on them, to quote that uh, snake flag. <laughs> yeah and 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 i think one of it, it, okay so i have a i have a that's my thought uh i have a i have a critique of that but is that like ish in the right ballpark yeah and this is another interesting thing about history uh, i'm guessing no one here is familiar with william blackstone no because no. you live in the 21st century like if you go look up william blackstone sometimes um, and read about him, you'll find a guy you've never heard of who had as much influence over all of the founders as anybody in defining how laws in a country should work and what legal systems should be. All that stuff, JR, you know, he was pulling together all of those Enlightenment thinkers and stuff into specifically legal work, right? So we often don't even know how influential people, you know, were in a time. But it's it's fundamentally is the constitution a living document or not? Is it, is it, as some people have defined it as like a breathing organism, right? That it's, it's organically going to change over time. 
And there are people who just constantly fear change, so they fear any loose interpretation. And I mean, you can see this in segregation cases of the 1950s. This is the 1960s, which was the, the liberal burger court. I mean, certainly is where tons of controversy came from. You know, evangelicals always talk about how Bibles and prayer were taken out of schools in that time. Is this there was a place, ton of reform for where crime. people talk about like activist courts, like we're going to change That's right. things? That's what they mean? That's right. So we fear judicial activism, right? If, if, if they can get, without having to be beholden to voters, uh, what happens if judges just start taking the law into their own hands. And uh, actually, you know, abortion, which was last week's topic on the show, which is always a uh, common conversation during election season, is, is a great example of this. So when you look at how the Roe v. Wade cases, like we ended up with Roe v. Wade, but before that, um, there were cases about birth control, again, in the 1960s. And, um, and the idea was, was it legal? You know, what if... What if a state said that birth control was outlawed, but a woman said, I have the right? So this case went to the Supreme Court, and in one of the best examples of how all of this can happen, um, the Supreme Court decision ended up introducing a right to privacy. And uh, I think it was Justice Douglas famously had this line where he said, "There is something like, there are penumbras and emanations within the constitution that indicate like he used all of this language as if he was like plucking this right to privacy out of nowhere but once it ends up in a dissenting opinion or or a, or a majority opinion does it not then become part of the law of the land so the right to privacy was essentially created by the court for what many people today would say were good reasons but that's the kind of thing to your point matt where people are like wait a second that Nowhere in the Constitution are we guaranteed a right to privacy. Who says we have a right to privacy? And then it impacts all of this stuff in the last 50 years, right? Down through and, sodomy cases that were used to target LGBTQ and all of these other things. And Clay, when you say it becomes part of the law, this is when lawyers argue precedent, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So you see this in every movie. You know, there's always like the hour of decision where the young lawyer has to come through with some argument. And they, they, they flip through their old dusty encyclopedia and they find it on page 7,400, right? <laughs> no, look, look, back in 1972 in Douglas versus, right? And they always find like that one decision and the judge listens and is impressed and we get the Disney ending. So that's exactly right. That by establishing judicial review, it does mean that the words and decisions of the court, oftentimes even dissenting opinions, which means that these are justices who did not win. Like they were on the losing side of the vote. They still get to write a dissenting opinion, which uh, Justice Kagan like just did in the Wisconsin decision two days ago, where the court said, struck down the, the right of Wisconsin voters' um, ballots to be reviewed in a, at a certain time frame. And the, the majority opinion included words from uh, Kavanaugh and he was like, we've got to be careful that these ballots don't come in and flip the election, like, which is insanity to say because they're ballots. They are part of the result. They're not flipping the result. They are the result. And Kagan said, we are like treading down a dangerous path if we're saying that counting all the ballots is flipping the election, right? That's a dissenting opinion, but she's getting it on record even as the court goes in another direction. So how You're talking about a, a alleged rapist, Brett Kavanaugh, right? That's right. How... Okay. how... <laughs> How, how does that work 
when precedent can disagree with itself. The precedent, the majority opinion is what is carried out. Well, right. uh, okay. I actually, here's a really important qualification. So the dissenting opinion becomes part of like jurisprudence and, you know, political philosophy and all of that other stuff. But we should, re- we should be reminded that just because the Supreme Court makes a decision for much of American history, that did not mean that states and or Congress agreed or upheld. What? Most famous, most famously, Wait, like think what? about Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, okay, so, yeah, tell me this. I don't understand. Okay, so, so 1954-55, we have the racial segregation cases coming to the Supreme Court, um, which, by the way, the Chief Justice Vinson, who was against integration, like he dropped dead of a heart attack. If you if you think about during like, the case, how. Yeah, if you think about how suddenly Shoot. things can change. Um, and so it, it was up to Eisenhower to replace the chief justice, right? So this is like a real turning point um, p- time period in the court's history. But anyway, so the court says that um, that integration is unconstitutional, that we cannot, we can no longer abide um, by separate but equal, right? So you've got um, Marshall, you've got... Uh, uh, Marshall making the case, right? And and he says separate is not equal inherently. So the Supreme Court says, we agree. We must allow people of all races to attend public education. Okay. And the decision states that this must just this change must be enacted, quote, with all deliberate speed. And that little phrase becomes like the most controversial because now if you're a racist <laughs> anything in Virginia. And the Supreme Court has says you've got to integrate with all deliberate speed. Well, what does that mean? And so this is why we have, I mean, just one example from pop culture. We've got Remember the Titans, which is the story of how Virginia football is finally integrating in what, the 1970s? Because they've been able to put it off for all those years. So the Supreme Court said racial segregation in the school system is, is unconstitutional in the mid-1950s. But how long did it take for the, the states to actually enact that so, decision. So basically you have to start, I, I mean, we've seen this on a lot of topics, like the Supreme Court says, this is the way it is. And then for 10 years, there's lawsuits of like, well, if that's the way it is, then I should be able to like buy a wedding cake wherever I want, like that kind of stuff. Right. And you start like pushing it, yep, pushing more and more cases through to like shape it and get more exact about the details. Yeah. So much like a political candidate who says, I want to be a Senator in 15 years. So I'm going to start running for local office and then I'm going to I'm going to get on a ballot and run for a congressional election that I'm going to lose badly. But that'll be a nice year of getting my name out there. And then I'll run for Senate and I'll probably lose the first time. Like just, you know, just imagine like someone taking the long view like this, but they're just getting name recognition for all those years. There are people who are doing this all the time in the court systems. So they are basically looking to find the perfect plaintiff like if you want to challenge gun laws, for example, find a place that has a particular reading of that law that doesn't seem to make sense, and then find a retired police officer who is doing private security and get him arrested for carrying a weapon so that you can then challenge based on his case. Because that's the case that's going to make the best argument for why the statute, in your mind, is dumb, 
right? I mean, that's the Same. Ruth Bader Ginsburg story too, right? Where she's like, we need to make gender discrimination very clear that that's not legal. And so she found a man who was being discriminated against for his gender and kind of that's pushed exactly him in right. the corner. And same thing with Plessy versus Ferguson, where separate but equal was established in 1896. They found a porter who had a percentage of his uh, makeup that was African-American, but people identified him as white. And so, you know, this is this is a thing that people do where they take a long view of bringing things about to to kind of over time get the change enacted through through different court decisions. But there's a tension there. Like, that's why our branches of government are separate, right? Well, they're supposed to be. Exactly. <laughs> Which so kind the... of brings us to today, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. what are the implications of what we see happening with the Supreme Court? How justices are nominated, those processes that are left to inter- interpretation year after year. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because so justices aren't supposed to be uh, influenced by public mood. That's one of the reasons we have this this uh, separated body. But obviously, times change, right? Things change. And sometimes if Congress isn't going to take care of it, like segregation in the South, well, the court can come in and, and, and do that. But it also has a lot to do with just, quite frankly, um, what judges believe and how they think. And this is why we have confirmation hearings that are typically all about past speeches, past decisions, um, and so on. So it's it's interesting how many times a justice has been confirmed. Like Reagan, Clinton, you know, a lot of recent presidents, they put judges on the court and everybody's like, yes, we got a conservative judge. Yes, we got a liberal judge. And then if you follow that judge's career, they commonly made decisions that went in the other direction. And then the whole base is like, man, I thought you were conservative. Um, <laughs> or, or like a more recent example, Chief Justice John Roberts, because President uh, you know, Bush too got to put the, chief, the current Chief Justice on the court. Well, everybody thought a Bush appointee was going to handle Obamacare when it came to the court. And Roberts surprised everybody when he upheld it, right? So this happens all the time where judges go in a different direction. It just seems that... Those have typically been judges who were nominated because of their superior legal mind, reputation, and career. When you get to the point where you're just nominating the person who is most likely to, you know, do what you want, um, there have there hasn't been a a ton of those. Like, you could disagree with a justice's opinion, but typically you can't disagree with their qualifications. If Obama's last nominee, Merrick Garland, had been had not been caught up in this crazy political season, like most people agreed, Garland is like one of the greatest legal minds of this generation. Um, but the Republicans refused to have a hearing for him for the entire last year of Obama's presidency, right? So now we have these justices being rushed through, and the question is, will someone like Amy Coney Barrett um, rule from? a a right and fair mind or will she be a politically active judge and and history tells us that all of the gnashing of teeth we often get surprised so maybe she'll surprise us too and to circle back to the earlier conversation what i'm really fascinated by as somebody who once was a political science student and professor who was a 
a biblical literalist and conservative. Like as my <laughs> as my spiritual views deconstructed, so too did my view of the American system and constitution. So what if someone like uh, Amy Barrett like goes through a deconstruction of her faith over the next three years because you know. She starts just hearing some different voices or reading some different things, or she feels the weight of the power she's been entrusted with. And she starts to hear different things. And she's like, wait a second, if scripture isn't what I thought it was, what does that mean about the way I read Scalia's view of the constitution and so on? So you never know how things can and will change. Um, But it's just, it's always fascinating to me about these mindsets that people come into judicial power with and how they actually make decisions. That's really interesting. Clay, Professor Clay, thank you. I learned a lot <laughs> yes. today. I had no idea on a bunch of that. Well, let's let's just finish with one last big buzz topic that's going to come up. Um, you know, the election will be tomorrow if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, or maybe the election is already like being debated. And yes, now because the, she's already been seated, the court could literally make decisions about ballots in this election, which is a fraught, fraught ground. But let's, which is what happened with Bush Gore in 2000. Yes. The Supreme Court essentially gave that election to Bush. Well, and also remember Florida. So you had Secretary of State Kathleen Harris, and there was there was a lot of things moving at that time. But it, that's right; it, it it went from a state to the court, and and there it was. So we we just have to acknowledge this phrase "court packing" that's come up over and over. Uh, it's been the big thing. Everybody's like, "Why won't Biden and Kamala talk about court packing? Will they pack the court?" So just just a refresher for everybody out there: like what that means is that uh, the president and Congress, um, one of the ways you could constrain judicial power is by changing the laws, right? And so what if you say that um, the court can have an unlimited number of justices or could have 12 justices? Well, then all of a sudden the sitting president would get to appoint multiple judges in one fell swoop, which is exactly what happened in the 1930s um, with President Franklin Roosevelt. So if you know the Great Depression was a thing that happened in the 1920s and 30s, Roosevelt became the president. He started passing all these laws, right? Bailouts and programs that were so scary to the American mindset at the time. It was like socialism was immediately overtaking our nation, right? Like you can't give all these government agencies power, blah, blah, blah. So the Supreme Court was striking down FDR's New Deal policies left and right. And so he tried to pack the court. He tried to basically expand the court from nine justices to 15, which he would have immediately picked six justices and won all the decisions, <laughs> right? So the court packing thing, it's, re- it's often referred to as a scheme, the court packing scheme of FDR that failed. And, you know, he barely, he was really in trouble heading into the 1936 reelection and all that stuff. So it didn't happen, but that's what court packing would, would mean. And then the the trouble becomes it's a slippery slope, right? Because what happens if Biden expands the court and then a Republican president comes in later on? Are we going to just have this like never ending, uh, you know, stream of all of a sudden the Supreme Court is like 47 people in 2050? That that clearly wouldn't be efficient or make sense. Wow. Maybe one day everyone will be a Supreme Court. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Amazing. The judicious people that we are. It'll be it'll be an entire court of crabs. That's right. <laughs> a court of crabs. I'd read that. Crab book. court. That'd be actually a good show. You are in crab court. <laughs> so there you have it, my friends. Um, uh, it, uh, being a judge is <clears throat> often about restraint. And 
It's a question of, we didn't even talk about how cases come to the court and all that, but that, that'll, that'll work itself out down the line. So the question is, will these justices really be able to have a fair mind, an objective mind, and will they make decisions that are right and good um, for the nation, not as it was conceived 230 years ago, but as it actually is right now? Man. Well, Clay, thanks so much for that crash course in the Supreme Court. Uh, we would love to hear what you think, uh, where you are, uh, how much you knew about the Supreme Court before this. Uh, before we leave this episode, I got to know what y'all are into this week. Uh, it, it is now officially November as of the time this episode is is launching. So I want to hear I want to hear what's going on. So, Kathy, tell us a little bit about what you're into. So I am a latecomer to this uh, Lovecraft country thing. Oh. Uh, Peter and I try, we have like a list of shows that we want to watch together. So it just takes a while for us to do that. So we are on Lovecraft Country. We finished episode six. So I am fascinated by the social critique <laughs> that is happening in this show. And then the episode that we just finished, which was episode six, uh, the one that happens in Korea was completely in subtitles. And so this brings me back to the fascinating thing back when um, we were talking about, oh, do you remember there used to be this thing, awards shows <laughs> around <laughs> movies where fancy people got dressed up and we handed out awards to movies that people could see in these things called movie theaters um, and when Parasite won. So um, so I was doing some listening of uh, podcasts and then this YouTube uh, movie critic, and I'll find it and put it in the show notes, but around that. And he was saying, you know, well, for folks who don't do well with subtitles, this is going to be a challenge. And I just thought that was so interesting because here we are in 2020 and it's still one of those things where... Um, I suspect that that show and that episode using so heavily subtitles is also part of the social critique. Right. Um, well, so even I that statement, like it. if you can't read subtitles, yeah. it's going to be hard. It's like, well, what if you speak the language? <laughs> right, right, right. Or why would it be so hard? I mean, if you speak and read English you should be able to pay attention to what's happening. <laughs> yeah, you could still be watching the screen where the words are flashing in your primary or perhaps only language. So I don't understand why that would be so difficult just because you can't understand the dialogue that's happening. So I found that quite fascinating. And then... Um, <laughs> Not to play off of the stereotype that we all know each other, but Peter actually has a connection to one of the Korean American actresses. Oh, really? In that episode, yeah. So his family went to church together. Oh, that's fun. And was like, wait. Wait, he was he reading didn't know about she that. Was on it. He was like, well, I think he was reading about it and heard that she was on a show or something. And then we finally put two and two together, and we're like, oh, that's 
so weird and wild and quite amusing because once again, it's like, oh, we, we do know a lot of people, <laughs> only one degree removed. So Lovecraft Country. Mm, awesome. Just, just disturbing. What? The whole show, right? <laughs> the, the whole show. It is like literally Jen and I sat down one evening, our food came, and we, she was like, what do you want to watch? Lovecraft Country? And I'm like, you know it's going to be horrific and disturbing. And she was like, let's give it a try. And like <laughs> like three minutes in, we were like, nope, not while we're eating. Just let's wait. Because we love it, but we're not gonna we're not gonna combine dinner and love. It's not. It's Can't not like, do that. It's not like date night movie, you know. It's, I you know I oddly so I feel really kind of numb to that maybe, and in the back of my mind, I'm constantly telling myself this is special effects, right? And right. It's the so makeup good. people did really they did a great job, and I have not read the book. Right, so I'm not familiar with the whole other world here, um, and so if you don't know anything about it, you can still watch it and enjoy it. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and will never look at Louboutin shoes the <laughs> same way. So for any women listening, you know that may be one of those like. One day I may splurge and buy a ridiculously expensive pair of stiletto pumps maybe not <laughs> i don't think i can anymore but <laughs> i feel like they would pair really well with a number of your t-shirts kathy i yes yes well and it's the the beautiful red sole and all of that kind of stuff but you know anyway <laughs> you have to watch episode five to totally understand what's going on in our conversation about stiletto heels but again, so much going on about race and gender and power mm. and perception and all of it. It was, it's, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, so Clay, what are you watching when you're not traumatized? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've been watching um, Utopia, which Matt talked about recently and um there's there's a couple things that are on the radar there, but one I wanted to mention. Did you guys watch Russian Doll on Netflix? No, yes. no. It came out. I don't know. It's been like over a year ago, a I think. So Natasha Leone, who's probably most famously been in um, Orange Is the New Black, and uh, Leslie Headland wrote this with Amy Poehler, and it's it's essentially like when you watch the trailer, it looks like Groundhog Day, right? And um. I don't know. It's short episodes. It's one season. There's going to be a second season. I just really love basically any Groundhog Day concept. Um, <laughs> they're, they're always interesting to me. But this one has like a lot of mystery around it. And they, they pretty quickly add uh, a, a wrinkle that I think really makes it work better. Um, it's, I mean, it did get nominated for some stuff. It's, I don't know. I want to call it great. I just really enjoyed it. JR, what was your experience with it? Oh, yeah. Loved it. It was awesome. Okay. So uh, it's, it just was a quick watch, something that I enjoyed this month. It's surprising, too. I'll say that. Like, there right. are things that happen, like, three episodes in that kind of change what you thought you were watching. Exactly. And, and it's also... It happens, like, six six episodes in that, you know, you're like, oh. You know. Yes. And it's also surprising in a way of... I, I imagine Natasha Leone is one of those actresses that people, like, some people just can't stand her. 
I think she's brilliant and I love watching her work. Like, so I think you get, you get peak Natasha in this show. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Russian doll on Netflix. Uh, I want to give a shout out to a book that I mentioned last week, but I finished this week actually on my way back from Portland called a libertarian walks into a bear (laughs) by Matthew Hongols Hetling. Uh, And I'm, I want to bring it back up because I think it actually, um, it actually has some bearing on, uh, bearing bearing there on, uh, the conversation we were having earlier. So this is, this is a book that is, it was written by a journalist about this little town in New Hampshire that libertarians took over and then sort of lost to bears. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, it's a true story. It's really well written. Like I laughed out loud at multiple sentences in the book uh, just because it was so clever and well written. But it really critiques both the way that governments can fail because they are bureaucracies, but also the uh, real deep problems with the kind of radical individualism that libertarianism uh champions and uh yeah i just thought it was a really interesting fascinating book it definitely i would say it's not it's not completely unbiased uh though the journalist does uh, uh demonstrate some warm regard for a number of the libertarians that he got to know over the course of writing this book uh it's also pretty clear that uh, you don't have to get very far in into the spectrum of libertarian politics before he just thinks that they're kind of foolish. Um, but uh, again, it's all <laughs> when you when you read the book, you're like, well, yeah, he's not wrong. <laughs> so, um, Jared part yeah, of that loud to me when he was at my house this last week, and um, I, I want to say it, it's definitely pro llama. <laughs> it is Ugh. definitely pro llama for sure. It's important. Um, I actually learned that llamas are much more fierce than I ever knew. So watch it. They spit. Uh, Did you learn anything about bears though? Tons about bears. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was thrown off pro llama, but we're. Uh, if bears. you've ever wanted to read a true story about what happens when a llama and a bear fight, have I got the book for you? <laughs> I've I mean, been waiting the mark, for this my entire life. It's been life. a void. It's been a void in the market for some time. Yeah. Well, don't worry. It doesn't disappoint. I think, Matt, what did, how <laughs> oh, did you Llamas, feel If this, this book was called Llamas versus Bears, I would already have it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's great. Uh, but I also did want to give a shout out to a, another book I finished this week called A Deadly Education by Naomi Novik. It is uh, one of a two-book series. The second book is going to be coming out early in 2021, assuming that we make it that far. And it is my it is now officially my favorite of the magic boarding school genre of books. Oh. Uh, so the Harry Potter books, right? Like where uh, wizard kids exist. They get taken to a magic boarding school and trained how to be adult wizards. Hmm. Um, it was funny. It was a really clever spin on the concept. The characters are great. It was surprising. And I like desperately cannot wait for the second book. So uh, re- if you like that genre, again, this one was by far my favorite of these, and I've read quite a few of them at this point. It's a it's a genre that I enjoy. So, uh, pretty pretty quick read too. Um, yeah. So, very, a deadly education by Naomi Novik. Very cool. Uh, just one last science note for you all: the scientific name of the llama is Llama Glama. 
No. I, I, That's amazing. I've known that since I went to the zoo in Pittsburgh. Um, Matt, that brings us back to you. Yeah, so when Jared and Amanda were visiting with us, Amanda kept saying, we've got to watch this movie called Get Duped. And I, I didn't even know what it was about. But every night she was like, you're probably too tired to watch Get Duped tonight. And I was like, I am. Uh, but then we did watch it there last night with us. And it was quite funny. So it's a, is it Scottish, Jared? Yeah, I mean, it's set in Scotland. I think most so of the characters, characters are like I don't know if it was Scottish filmmakers. But yeah, so basically they take some city kids and they're supposed to go on this like hike through the Scottish highlands with no help and no like electronics to prove so that they can get like this award, basically. And most of the kids are these troublemakers from their troubled schools. Uh, so they set off into the highlands, not realizing that there's a, a, a wealthy, evil duke out there who likes to hunt the city kids who come through. Uh, but it's pure, I mean, it's comedy for sure. I, I was laughing really hard. One of the kids is like the stupidest person you've ever seen on film. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and it's kind of heartwarming too. It's also about friendship and whatever, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I had a good time and a good laugh, uh, watching that. So that's on Amazon prime, I think. So if you've got prime, check out, get duped. Uh, you might, you know, uh, Kathy, you, know how, you might have to put yeah? the subtitles on. We did because the oh. accent was a little thick. <laughs> the Scottish brig. I haven't been you told know how about this. Happy Amanda is going to be that you shouted this out. <laughs> well, Amanda yeah. didn't tell me about it because she must not love me. Oh, she'd be glad to watch it with you, Clay. It's because we haven't had a movie night, Clay. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, this has been episode 274. Mm. Uh, we are getting within sh- uh, llama spitting distance of our 300th episode, uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, please reach out. Let us know uh, your thoughts about the Supreme Court, because we're sure after this last couple of weeks, you have some. We will be back next week post-election, hopefully with uh, some idea of who the president's going to be. And also, hopefully, with a new episode that's great and full of great content. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care of each other. Wear your masks. Stay home if you can. And be well.